to turn with me if in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. This week, I will be uh, reading uh, John 7, verses 1 through 52. Uh, next week, we'll focus in on John 7, 37 to 39. So if you're thinking, he didn't spend a lot of time on John 7, 37 to 39, this great passage in the middle of this chapter, that's because we're going to spend a whole uh, sermon on it next week. So uh, this week... Uh, John 7, 1 through 52. And before I read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace offered in your Son. Uh, we do come. Uh, we do come to you this morning. We come ready to hear, ready to learn, ready to listen, ready, ready to be rebuked, ready to be encouraged, ready to be taught ready to learn how to walk with you, Jesus. And uh, we pray that you would help us to that end, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would work in our minds and hearts, that we would see you more fully, that we would trust you more fully, and that we would learn to walk with you more fully day by day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 7, uh, beginning with verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast, Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, 
Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those whom believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these things, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. How does your approach to Jesus stop you from coming to Jesus? What is it about what you bring to the table that actually gets in the way of seeing who Jesus is? And what we see in our text this morning is that theological banter and worldly thinking and self-centeredness all stop us from seeing who Jesus is. And if you would know who Jesus is, you must choose the path of humble obedience which, of course, is the path that Jesus himself took. He himself shows us that the path to greatness is through humility, and it is the suffering servant who becomes the glorified son. And so our outline for this morning, you can see in your bulletin, there are uh, five points, uh, theological banter, worldly thinking, self-centeredness, humble obedience, and the glorified son. 
And the question that I want you to be asking yourselves this morning is this, how does your approach to Jesus stop you from actually coming to Jesus? What is it about what you bring to the table that gets in the way of you seeing Jesus for who he is, the glorified son and source of eternal life? So first, theological banter. How do you talk about religious things? How seriously do you take them? Are spiritual matters just something to talk about? Uh, Do you like the back and forth of the theological debate? Uh, Do you argue to be right or accurate or precise? Do new and off-the-wall theological matters titillate your mind? Someone once said an open mind is like an open mouth. It's made to shut on something. Is your mind so open it never shuts? Uh, do, Do you just like the sound of discussion more than the realities being discussed? Jesus has been going back and forth with the religious elite in Judea for a few chapters now. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath in Jerusalem. And this began the the persecution of Jesus. On top of that, we're told uh, by calling God his father, the Jews understood Jesus to be making himself out to be God, equal with God. And for that, they didn't just want to persecute him, they wanted to kill him. And so begins this really chapters-long debate on the authority of Jesus. What right does he have to heal on the Sabbath? Which brings us then to chapter 7. Now, to understand the the flow of chapter 7, I want you to to think of it a little bit like a musical. Bear with me. You know how in musicals you have different scenes, but oftentimes in between those scenes, you have everyone on stage singing all at once while they kind of rearrange the set for the next scene, right? There are these these in-between times. Uh, That's what's going on here. You have five distinct scenes, but... Uh, the middle one being kind of a mini scene. But between each one, you have what what seems like a choral interlude of sorts that consists of explaining the people's reactions to Jesus. It's not the main action in the story, but the reaction. And and, uh, let me read them together. You'll kind of get the feel of the refrain here. Uh, So first, starting in verse 11, verses 11 to 13. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke spoke openly of him. Then verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the, the authorities really know that this is the Christ? We know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Then verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And then finally, verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, and others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. You see what the crowds are doing, right? The crowds are speculating on who Jesus is. Some say one thing, some another. He is a good man. He is leading the people astray. He is the Christ. He is a prophet. Some want to arrest him, but no one lays a hand on him. 
the Pharisees are invested, right? They're, they are the ones who want Jesus arrested. But the crowds, the people, they simply mutter. They, they gossip. They debate under their breath. They, they prattle on endlessly about who this Jesus might be. They don't speak out loud because they are afraid of the Jews. Uh, now, remember, John uses the word Jews in a couple of different ways uh, in uh, his gospel. It can refer to ethnicity, Jew versus Gentile. Of course, that can't be the case here because everyone talking is Jewish. Uh, they are there for one of the Jewish festivals, after all. It can also refer to geography, uh, Judean versus Galilean, so southern Jews versus northern Jews, uh, which could be what it means here. Jesus' fiercest opposition was in the south, in Judea, in and around Jerusalem. Or it can be a, a, a covenantal designation, referring to the Jews as God's covenant people represented by their leaders. And so it refers to the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And here it most likely refers to the elite in Judea, uh, a combination of these latter two ideas. The people are afraid to speak out loud. Why? Because of the opposition of the Judean elite to Jesus. And so the crowds simply gossip under their breath. They mutter. Many believe on some level, but they are not willing to commit themselves openly. Others debate the finer points of Scripture. Where is the Christ to come from? But for the people, debating Jesus is really a matter just of theological banter. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a way to pass the time at the feast. They're just catching up on the latest gossip in Jerusalem. Again, let me ask you, right, how do you talk about religious things? Do you realize that when you debate Jesus or the Bible or the resurrection or the Trinity, these things are not a matter of theological speculation? This is not just a way to pass the time. These things are matters of life and death, of heaven and hell, of not passing the time, but of passing on into eternity. And I would encourage you to think deeply about who Jesus is, but, but not as a theological exercise and not as a party game, but because who Jesus is matters for both this life and the next. So first we see the crowds kind of engaging in this theological banter. And if we keep our discussion on that level, we will rarely come to a true understanding of who Jesus is. The second, worldly thinking. Uh, some of you may take religious matters very seriously. And then the question becomes, how do you think about those things? The religious leaders thought one way. We'll look at that in a minute. Jesus' brothers thought another because of opposition from the Jews, verse 1, again, the Judean elite, because of this opposition, Jesus continued to minister in Galilee. Uh, he was avoiding Jerusalem, you see. But one of the three great festivals was coming up, and according to the Old Testament law, every male in Israel was to come to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. Jesus' brothers thought this was his moment. And so they say in verses 3 and 4, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now John tells us in verse 5 that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. But they saw his signs, and they're kind of goading him on. Maybe, maybe they thought there would be some personal glory in it for them if Jesus, their brother, came to fame. They're saying, basically, okay, Mr. Big Shot, uh, if you want to make something of yourself, go to Jerusalem and show yourself to the world. Then all your so-called disciples will see. And you see their logic, right? They're, they're playing the role of Jesus' PR team. Jesus, if you want to amass a following, here's what you need to do. 
go to Jerusalem and put on the biggest show anyone has ever seen, do as many signs and wonders as possible. That's how you get followers, Jesus. Of course, notice Jesus' response. He says simply, my time has not yet come. And we'll keep coming back to this throughout John. What what does Jesus mean by my time has not yet come? Jesus repeatedly in in John chapters 2 through 8 says his time or his hour has not yet come. But to really understand what that means, what that time or hour is, we have to look at chapters 12 through 17 when Jesus will finally say the hour has come. In John 12, 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, 27, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Why is Jesus' soul troubled there? Because he's about to head to the cross. John 13, 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father. John 17, 1, Jesus prays to the Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. And so what is the hour that Jesus is anticipating here in John? Well, it involves the cross, hence Jesus' sorrow. It involves Jesus being glorified, and it involves Jesus leaving this world and going to the Father. Jesus' hour is the time of his completing his redemptive work in the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. Everything from the time of sorrow at the cross to his returning to the Father's right hand. It is Jesus' glorification through the cross in his rising from the dead and ascending to the Father's right hand. And now notice how this relates to Jesus' brother's PR philosophy. And two things. First, Jesus' brothers want him essentially to glorify himself in Jerusalem. But Jesus knows that the time for him to be glorified has not yet come. Their timing is off. Second, Jesus' brothers want him to glorify himself by doing these things openly. They want him to to do various signs and miracles so everyone will see. But when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem here in this chapter, he goes up in secret, not to perform miracles, not to put on a show. And there is a certain worldly logic to what Jesus' brothers say, right? Make a big splash, get a big following. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that Jews demand signs, That could be plastered on our present age, right? Prove it, Jesus. Show yourself to the world, then we'll believe. The logic is prove how great you are through a show of power, and then people will follow you. You may wonder why does Jesus tell his brothers that he will not go up in verse 8, and then he goes up in verse 10. And the answer, I think, lies in, in what we are talking about. Essentially, Jesus says to his brothers, I'm not going up in the timing and the manner that you expect. Jesus is pushing against their this age way of thinking. And in fact, Jesus does this exact same thing multiple times in the Gospel of John. When Jesus' mother, you may remember, tells him about the wedding at the wedding in Cana that the hosts have run out of wine, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And then he turns the water into wine. Uh, When an official's son is sick, Jesus says, and that official comes to Jesus and asks for him to heal his son. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But then the official begs him and Jesus heals his son. The two sisters of Lazarus send a message to Jesus to come because Jesus' friend is sick. And he stays two days longer until Lazarus dies. 
Jesus consistently pushes back against the expectations of the people. He refuses to do things on their timetable, in their way, and for their purposes. Jesus' brothers want him to glorify himself. They want him to wow the crowd and impress a following. But Jesus is thinking about his glory with the Father, and he says, my time has not yet come. They are thinking on a purely earthly level. Jesus is thinking about eternal glory. Even the word used here for go up to Jerusalem is the word later used of Jesus' ascension into heaven. They are thinking of going up into Jerusalem. Jesus is thinking of going up into heaven. In the end, he does not go up when and how they say. He goes up later and quietly. He refuses to fulfill their expectations. The crowds also have a this present age focus. Uh, they, the, they are debating throughout the chapter where Jesus came from. And we know where he comes from, they say, verse 27, so he can't be the Christ. He comes from Galilee, verse 41. Isn't the Christ to come from Bethlehem, verse 42? Now, ironically, John leaves that hanging because Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem, but that's not the point for John. John keeps putting it in our face that Jesus was sent from the Father. They are busy arguing about Jesus' hometown as if that ultimately mattered, but John wants us to see there is a more important origin story here, a more significant hometown and lineage. Jesus came from the Father, from heaven. They are too busy arguing uh, arguing about hometowns to see that. See, if, if you have your mind stuck on this worldly credentials and this worldly power, you won't get to Jesus that way. You will misunderstand him and just plain old miss him for who he is. Jesus doesn't come first and foremost for a show of power, and he doesn't come to satisfy our demand for credentials. He came from heaven and in weakness. Jesus came from the Father. He descended in the incarnation. God became man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It wasn't flashy. In fact, rather than coming in all his glory, he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. He took on humanity. He got hangnails and smelly feet and bedhead and morning breath. There was nothing glorious about that, which is probably why his brothers were so slow to believe. But Jesus knew that the path to glory was not put on a show, but humble yourself on the cross. Jesus must first finish descending from the Father before he can ascend back to the Father's right hand. And so on the one hand, don't treat Jesus like another tidbit for banter at parties. He's too important for that. And don't approach him trying to impose on him your ideas of power and credentials. He won't meet your standards because he has no interest in meeting your standards. And so much for the reaction then of the crowds and the reaction of Jesus' brothers. Let's look at the reaction of the religious elite in their self-centeredness. It's hard for many of us not to be in the spotlight. We want to be center stage. We, we are the main character of our stories. I actually don't like being in the spotlight. I know I probably chose the wrong career. Uh, but I don't like being in the spotlight, not because I'm not self-centered. I don't like being in the spotlight because I'm afraid I'm going to mess up. We want to be loved. And to be fair, we were made to be loved, made to be loved by God, made to experience his inexhaustible, endless, ever-present love. But with the advent of sin, we both lost that and turned our attention elsewhere. This is the real problem with the religious leaders, as we will see in a minute. 
And when Jesus finally does go up to Jerusalem in the middle of the feast and he begins teaching, the Jewish, uh, the Judean elite marvel. Notice what they say in verse 15. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, that question sounds like a fact-finding question. How is this so? Uh, but it's probably a little bit more than that. How, they're, they're probably saying, how dare he teach who never studied in our schools? See, their, their elitism is showing. Who does he think he is? Where's his PhD, his terminal degree, his credentials? If his brothers wanted a show of raw power, the religious elite demand academic credentials. They want to know that Jesus is playing by their rules because, of course, then he's controllable. You can debate the merits of, of one university versus another, of, of Rabbi Hillel versus Rabbi Gamaliel. But where did this guy go to school? And who does he think he is teaching in the temple without a license? And Jesus' answer in verse 16 is, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Again, they, they are thinking within the present age, Jesus points above to the Father in heaven. Now, how can they know if that's true? Jesus says, if you are willing to do God's will, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, Jesus says, if you want to know whether my teaching is from God or not, first you must be willing to do God's will. And then he says in verse 18, as a kind of mini test of his authority, he says, the, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But of course, Jesus wasn't seeking his own glory. He proved that when he, his brothers goaded him to show off at the feast. But he goes on in verse 18, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. See, he's saying, how do you know if someone speaks in the authority of another? Well, a sure sign that they don't, at least, is if they seek their own glory. But that's not Jesus. He's seeking the glory of his father. But what about them? Uh, they, they have the law of Moses, Jesus said. Are they willing to do God's will? Uh, no. Not, not only do they not keep the law, they are actively seeking to kill Jesus, which is in direct violation of the law. And now the crowds act as if that's absurd. Uh, many of them are from out of town. Maybe they don't know what's been going on, but some at least do, because in verse 25, the people of Jerusalem say, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? And Jesus just keeps going. He says, uh, I did one work. I healed a man on the Sabbath in John 5. We read about that. And yet you seek to kill me. You repeatedly circumcise on the Sabbath, an action both less significant and more often, and yet you're angry with me? Your judgment is off, he's saying. They, wanna, they, they, they want to break God's law, kill a man, because he healed someone on the Sabbath. Well, why? why? Why do the Pharisees want to kill Jesus because he healed somebody on the Sabbath? Well, later in the chapter, after the Pharisees send out officers to arrest Jesus, and they return empty-handed, the Pharisees ask, why didn't you bring him? They're asking the guards, why didn't you bring Jesus back? And they say in verse 46, nobody ever talked like this guy. Their response is basically, that the response of the elite is basically, you idiots, you've been taken in. No smart people believe in Jesus. Verse 49 says, this crowd that, that does not know the law is accursed. You know, they're, they're saying you're idiots and the crowds are a bunch of unlearned idiots too. You can see their elitism coming through. Nobody with a decent education ever believed in Jesus, is what they're saying. Now, of course, it wasn't true. Some of the Pharisees did believe. In fact, Nicodemus was right there, the one who came to Jesus at night. He still isn't bold enough to confess Jesus out loud, 
during the daylight, as it were, but he half-heartedly sticks up for Jesus, and they basically say, well, you're as ridiculous as the rest. Nicodemus just points them to their law, but they don't care about their law, at least not as far as Jesus is concerned, not when it's not in their favor. And so why? Why are they rejecting Jesus? Why are they trying to kill him? In verse 31, when the crowds begin to say, maybe he is the Christ, it's at that point that the Pharisees, hearing the muttering of the crowd, send officers to arrest him. Why? Well, I think it's obvious, isn't it? They're jealous. They love the attention of the crowds. They love that they are the religious elite. They love that people look to them as the final say of what is good and right and true. And this becomes clearer as the gospel goes on. Uh, We see this in John 11. We read John 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. John 12, 19 says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are gaining, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We see the same thing in the other Gospels. In Matthew 27, 18, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the religious leaders had delivered Jesus up. See, their hearts are set on their own power and their own glory, and Jesus is frustrating their plans. As long as your heart is set on your power, your glory, your name, your reputation, your being center stage, you will not be able to accept Jesus for who he is. You will do whatever you can to push him aside, brush him off, pretend he doesn't exist, ignore his commands, reject his overtures of love. To come to Jesus is to realize you're not center stage. To come to Jesus is to realize life isn't about what you can accomplish or your name or the name that you can make for yourself. This then leads to our next point, humble obedience. If we are not to treat Jesus like a puzzle to be solved, not to focus on signs and wonders and shows of power, if we must put aside self-centeredness and self-promotion, then how are we to come? Well, we're told a number of things in John, but here Jesus only mentions one, and we already read it in verse 17, but let me read it again. Verse 17, Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. See, we must humble ourselves and pursue God's will for our lives. Now, Jesus doesn't say, if anyone perfectly keeps God's law, it's not what he says. He says, if you have a heart to do God's will, everything will become clear. And the challenge is this. You know, we think, once I have it all figured out, then I'll submit to God. And Jesus says, once you submit to God, then you'll begin to figure things out. A heart of rebellion will never come to God. A heart of humility will. What is the attitude of your heart? Now, you may honestly say, I- I'm not sure. It's-, it's messy, right? Some days there may be some humility there. Other days, not so much. Can I just will myself humble? How does that work? Well, let's keep going then to our last point, the glorified son. You know, once the Pharisees send out the guard to arrest Jesus, uh, he responds with some odd comments in verses 33 and 34. He says this, He says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. See, Jesus' arrest gets that much closer, and Jesus begins to think about his arrest and everything that's going to follow from that. And he says, in just a little while, I am going to him who sent me. 
Jesus insists throughout the gospel that he was sent from the Father, and now he talks about going to the Father. Now, in, back in chapter 6, you may remember Jesus talked about seeing the Son of Man ascend to where he was before. And now Jesus talks about it again. Now, the Jewish leaders don't get it. What, what could Jesus be talking about? I mean, where does he think he's going? And then on the last day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he says this in verses 37 to 38. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds, now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, we're going to, again, we're going to come back to these words next week, but the point is this. Jesus is looking forward to his return to the Father, to his glorification, John says in verse 39. And at that time, Jesus will pour out his spirit to quench the thirst of the thirsty, to fill them with a never-ending river. In John's gospel, this is still to come, but of course, for us, this is history. Jesus went to the cross. He humbled himself. He became a servant. He did not seek his own glory. He took the path of humility. He died for sin. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand even now, and he has poured out his spirit on the church. Now whoever believes in him receives the spirit as a gift, a river of living water poured out to quench the thirst of our souls. Again, this is not about trivia night. It's not a show. It's, it's not even primarily about you. But if you humble yourself, you can see Jesus as the glorified son, as the source of the spirit, the one who can satisfy souls. So repent of, of treating Jesus as trivia. Repent of demanding signs and credentials. Repent of pursuing self and decentering Jesus from your life. And humble yourself in this kind of concrete way through repentance and faith and you will come to know Jesus for who he is in all of his resurrected and ascended glory. You will receive the spirit poured out into you like living water. And if you want to understand that better, then you'll have to come back next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we marvel at the humility of Jesus who came from heaven to die for sin but who was then raised on the third day and ascended to your right hand and even now sits there interceding for us, pouring out his spirit for our good. Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus and to rest in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.